Chapter Fourteen of A Son at the Front. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chad. A Son at the Front by Edith Wharton. Chapter Fourteen. When Campton took his sketch of George to Leonice Black, the dealer who specialized in Camptons, he was surprised at the magnitude of the sum which the great picture broker, lounging in a glossy war office uniform among his Gogan and Guyar, immediately offered. Leonice Black noted his surprise and smiled. You think there's nothing doing nowadays? Don't you believe it, Mr. Campton? Now that the big men have stopped painting, the collectors are all the keener to snap up what's left in their portfolios. He placed the cheque in Campton's hand and drew back to study the effects of the sketch which he had slipped into a frame against a velvet curtain. Ah, he said, as if he were tasting an old wine. As Campton turned to go, the dealer's enthusiasm bubbled over. Haven't you got anything more? Remember me, if you have. I don't sell my sketches, said Campton. This was exceptional, for a charity. I know, I know. Well, you're likely to have a good many more calls of the same sort before we get this war over, the dealer remarked philosophically. Anyhow, remember, I can place anything you'll give me. When people want a Campton, it's to me they come. I've got standing orders from two clients, both given before the war, and both good today. Campton paused in the doorway, seized by his old fear of the paintings passing into Anderson Brandt's possession. Look here, where is this one going? The dealer cocked his handsome grey head and glanced archly through pulp eyelids. Violation of professional secrecy? Well, well. Under constraint, I'll confess, it's a young lady, great admirer, artist herself. Has her order by cable from New York a year ago. Been on the outlook ever since. Oh, all right, Campton answered, repocketing the money. He set out at once for the Friends of French Art, and Leonis Black, bound for the Ministry of War, walked by his side, regaling him alternately with the gossip of the Ministry and with racy anecdotes of the dealer's world. In Black's opinion, the war was an inexcusable blunder, since Germany was getting to be the best market for the kind of freak painters out of whom the dealers who know how to make a man foam can make a big turnover. I don't know what on earth will become of those poor devils now. Paris cared for them only because she knew Germany would give any money for their things. Personally, as you know, I've always preferred sounder goods. I'm a classic, my dear Campton, and I can feel only classic art, said the dealer, swelling out his uniform breast and stroking his Assyrian nose as though its handsome curve followed the pure Delphic line. But as long as things go on, as they are at present in my department of the administration, the war's not going to end in a hurry, he continued, and now we're in for it. We've got to see the thing through. Campton found Bolston, as usual, in his melancholy cabinet particulier. He was listening to the tale of a young woman 
with streaming eyes and an extravagant hat. She was so absorbed in her trouble that she did not notice Campton's entrance, and behind her back the painter made a sign to say that she was not to be interrupted. He was as much interested in the suppliant's tale as in watching Bolson's way of listening. That modest and commonplace-looking young man was beginning to excite a lively curiosity in Campton. It was not only that he remembered George's commendation, for he knew that the generous enthusiasms of youth may be inspired by trifles imperceptible to the older. It was Bolston himself who interested the painter. He knew no more of the young man than the scant details Miss Anthony could give. Bolston, it appeared, was the oldest hope of a well-to-do Connecticut family. On his leaving college, a place had been reserved for him in the paternal business, but he had announced good-humouredly that he did not mean to spend his life in an office, and one day, after a ten minutes' conversation with his father, as to which details were lacking, he had packed a suitcase and sailed for France. There he had lived ever since, in shabby rooms in the Rue de Vernay, on the scant allowance remitted by an irate parent, apparently never running into debt yet always ready to help a friend. All the American art students in Paris knew Bolston, and though he was still in the early thirties, they all looked up to him, for Bolston had one quality which always impresses youth. Bolston knew everybody, whether you went with him to a smart restaurant in the Rue Royale, or to a wine shop of the left bank. The patron welcomed him with the same cordiality and sent the same empathic instructions to the cook. The first fresh peas and the tenderest spring chicken were always for this quiet youth, who, when he was alone, dined cheerfully on ville and vin ordinaire. If you wanted to know where to get the best burgundy, Boston could tell you. He could also tell you where to buy an engagement ring for your girl, a Ford runabout going at half price, or a papier timbre on which to address a summons to a recalcitrant laundress. If you got into your row with your landlady, you find the Boston near, and that at sight of him she melted and withdrew her claim. Or failing this, he knew the solicitor in whose office her son was a clerk, or had other means of producing her to reason. Bolston also knew a man who could make old clocks go, another who could clean flannels without their shrinking, and a third who could get you old picture frames for a song. And best of all, when any inexperienced American youth was caught in the dark Persian cobweb, and the people at home were on no account to hear about it. Bolston was found to be the friend and familiar of certain occult authorities who, with a smile and a word of warning, could break the mesh and free the victim. The mystery was how and why all these people did what Bolston wanted, but the reason began to dawn on Campton as he watched the young woman in the foolish hat deliver herself of her grievance. Bolston was simply a perfect listener and most of his life was spent in listening. Everything about him listened. His round forehead and peering screwed-up eyes, his lips twitching responsibly under the close-clipped 
moustache and every crease and dimple of his sagittous and humorous young countenance even the attitude of his short fat body with elbows comfortably bedded in heaped-up papers and fingers plunged into his crinkled hair there was never a hint of hurry or impatience about him having once asserted his right to do what he liked with his life he was apparently content to let all his friends prey on it you never caught his eye on the clock or his lips shaping an answer before you had turned the last corner of your story yet when the story was told when he had surveyed it in all its bearings you could be sure he would do what he could for you and do it before the day was over very well mademoiselle he said when the young woman had finished i promise you i'll see madame Busset and try to get her to recognize your claim mind you i don't ask charity i won't take charity from your committee the young lady hissed gathering up a tawdry handbag oh we're not forcing it on anyone smiled bolston opening the door for her when he turned back to campton his face was flushed and frowning poor thing she's a nuisance but i'll fight to the last ditch for her the chap she lives with was Busey's secretary and understudy and devilled for him before the war the poor fellow has come back from the front a complete wreck can't even collect the salary Busey owes him for the last three months before the war Busey's plea is that he's too poor and that the war lets him out of paying of course he counts on our doing it for him and you're not going to well said bolston humorously i shouldn't wonder if he beats us in the long run but i'll have a first try and anyhow the poor girl needn't know she used to earn a little money doing fashion articles but of course there's no market for that now and i don't see how the pair can live they have a little boy and there's an infirm mother and they're waiting to get married till the girl can find a job good lord campton groaned with a sudden vision of the countless little trades and traffics arrested by the war and all the industrious thousands reduced by querulous pauperism or slow death how do they live all these people they don't always i could tell you don't for god's sake i can't stand it campton drew out the cheque here this is what i've got for the davrils good lord said bolston staring with round eyes it will pull them through anyhow won't it campton triumphed well said bolston it will if you'll endorse it he added smiling campton laughed and took up a pen a day or two later campton returning home one afternoon overtook a small black-veiled figure with a limp like his own he guessed at once that it was the lame davril girl come to thank him and his dislike of such ceremonies caused him to glance about for a way of escape but as he did so the girl turned with a white that put him to shame he remembered adele antony saying one day when he had found her in her refugee office patiently undergoing a like ordeal we've no right to refuse the only coin they can repay us in the davril girl was a plain likeness of her brother with the same hungry flame in her eyes she wore the nondescript black that campton had remarked at the funeral and knowing the importance which the french 
attached to every detail of conventional mourning he wondered that mother and daughter had not laid out part of his gift in crape but doubtless the equally strong instinct of thrift had caused madame d'avril to put away the whole sum madame d'avril greeted campton pleasantly and assured him that she had not found the long way from villegeurif to montmartre too difficult i would have gone to you the painter protested but she answered that she wanted to see with her own eyes where her brother's friend lived in the studio she looked about her with a quick searching glance said oh a piano as if the fact were connected with the object of her errand and then settling herself in an armchair unclasped her shabby handbag monsieur there has been a misunderstanding this money is not ours she laid campton's cheque on the table a flush of annoyance rose to the painter's face what on earth had boston let him in for if the davrils were as proud as all that it was not worth while to have sold a sketch it had cost him such a pang to part with he felt the exasperation of the would-be philanthropist when he first discovers that nothing complicates life as much as doing good but mademoiselle this money is not ours if rene had lived he would never have sold your picture and we would starve rather than betray his trust when stout ladies in velvet declare that they would starve rather than sacrifice this or that principle the statement has only the cold beauty of rhetoric but on the drawn lips of a thinly clad young woman evidently acquainted with the process it becomes a fiery reality starve nonsense my dear young lady you betray him when you talk like that said campton moved she shook her head it depends monsieur which things matter most to one we shall never my mother and i do anything that rene would not have done the picture was not ours we brought it back to you but if the picture's not yours it's mine campton interrupted and i'd a right to sell it and a right to do what i choose with the money his visitor smiled that's what we feel it was what i was coming to and clasping her threadbare glove tips about the arms of the chair mademoiselle d'avril set forth with extreme precision the object of her visit it was to propose that campton should hand over the cheque to the friends of french art devoting one-third to the aid of the families of combatant painters the rest to the young musicians and authors it doesn't seem right that only the painter's family should benefit by what your committee are doing and rene would have thought so too he knew so many young men of letters and journalists who before the war just managed to keep their families alive and in my profession i could tell you of poor music teachers and accompanists whose work stopped the day war broke out and who have been living ever since on the crusts their luckier comrades could spare them rene would have let us accept from you help that was shared with others he would have been so glad often of a few francs to relieve the misery we see about us and this great sum might be the beginning of a cooperative work for artists ruined by the war she went on to explain that in the families of almost all the young artists at the front there was at least one member at home who practised one of the arts 
or who was capable of doing some kind of useful work the value of campton's gift mademoiselle d'avril argued would be tripled if it were so employed as to give the artists and their families occupation producing at least the illusion that those who could were earning their living or helping their less fortunate comrades it's not only a question of saving their dignity i don't believe much in that you have dignity or you haven't and if you have it doesn't need any saving this clear-toned young woman remarked the real question for all of us artists is that of keeping our hands in and our interests in our work alive sometimes too of giving a new talent its first chance at any rate it would mean work and not stagnation which is all that most charity produces she developed her plan for the musicians concerts in the private houses whence her glance at the piano for the painters small exhibitions in the rooms of the committee where their pictures would be sold with the deduction of a percentage to be returned to the general fund and for the writers well their lot was perhaps the hardest to deal with but an employment agency might be opened where those who chose could put their names down and take such work as was offered above all mademoiselle d'avril again insisted the fund created by campton's gift was to be spent only in giving employment not for mere relief campton listened with growing attention nothing hitherto had been less in the line of his interests than the large schemes of general amelioration which were coming to be classed under the transatlantic term of social welfare if questioned on the subject a few months earlier he would probably have concealed his fundamental indifference under the profession of an extreme individualism and the assertion of every man's right to suffer and starve in his own way ever since rene d'avril's death had brought home to him the boundless havoc of the war he had felt no more than the impulse to seize his own pain by putting his hand in his pocket when a particular case was too poignant to be ignored yet here were people who had already offered their dearest to france and were now pleading to be allowed to give all the rest and who had had courage and wisdom to think out in advance the form in which their gift would do most good campton had the awe of the unpractical man for anyone who knows how to apply his ideas he felt that there was no use in disputing mademoiselle d'avril's plan he must either agree to it or repocket his cheque i'll do as you want of course but i'm not much good about details hadn't you better consult someone else he suggested oh that was already done she had outlined her project to miss anthony and mr bolston who approved all she wanted was campton's consent and this he gave the more cordially when he learned that for the present at least nothing more was expected of him his first steps in beneficence he felt were unspeakably terrifying yet he was already aware that resist as he might he would never be able to keep his footing on the brink of that abyss into it as the days went by his gaze was oftener and oftener plunged he had begun to feel that pity was his only remaining link with his kind the one barrier between himself and the dreadful solitude which awaited him when he returned to his studio what would there have been to think of there alone among his unfinished pictures and his broken memories if not the wants and woes of people more bereft than himself his own future was not a thing to dwell on george was safe but what george and he were likely 
to make of each other after the ordeal was over was a question he preferred to put aside he was more and more taking george and his safety for granted as a solid standing ground from which to reach out a hand to the thousands struggling in the depths as long as the world's fate was in the balance it was every man's duty to throw into that balance his last ounce of brain and muscle campton wondered how he had ever thought that an accident of birth of remoteness merely geographical could justify or even make possible an attitude of moral aloofness harvey mayhew's reasons for wishing to annihilate germany began to seem less grotesque than his own for standing aside in the heat of his conversation he no longer grudged the hours given to mr mayhew he patiently led his truculent relative from one government office to another everywhere laying stress on mr mayhew's sympathy with france and his desire to advocate her cause to the in the united states and trying to curtail his enumeration of his grievances by a glance at the clock and the reminder that they had another minister to see mr mayhew was not very manageable his adventure had grown with repetition and he was increasingly disposed to feel that the retaliation he called down on germany could best be justified by telling everyone what he had suffered from intensely aware of the value of time in utica he was less sensible of it in paris and seemed to think that since he had left a flourishing business to preach the holy war other people ought to leave their affairs to give him a hearing but his zeal and persistence were irresistible and doors which campton had seen barred against the most reasonable appeals flew open at the sound of mr mayhew's trumpet his pink face and silvery hair gave him an apostolic air and circles to which america had hitherto been a mere speck in space suddenly discovered that he represented that legendary character the typical american the keen boston prompt to note and utilize the fact urged campton to interest mr mayhew in the friends of french art and with considerable flourish the former peace delegate was produced at a committee meeting and given his head but his interest flagged when he found that the friends concerned themselves with atrocities only in so far as any act of war is one and that their immediate task was the humdrum one of feeding and clothing the families of combatants and sending comforts to the trenches he served up with a somewhat dog-eared eloquence the unusual account of his own experiences and pressed a modest gift upon the treasurer but when he departed after wringing everybody's hands and leaving the french members bedewed with emotion campton with the conviction that their quiet weekly meetings would not often be fluttered by his presence campton was spending an increasing amount of time in the palais royal restaurant where he performed any drudgery for which no initiative was required once or twice when miss anthony was submerged by a fresh influx of refugees he lent her a hand too and on most days he dropped in late at her office waited for her to sift and dismiss the last applicants and saw her home through the incessant rain it increased him to note that the altruism she had so long wasted on pampered friends was developing into a wise and orderly benevolence he had always thought of her as an eternal schoolgirl now she had grown into a woman sometimes he fancied the change dated from the moment when their eyes had met across the station the day that they had seen george off he wondered whether it might not be interesting to paint her new face if ever painting became again thinkable passion i suppose the great thing is 
capacity for passion he mused in himself he imagined the capacity to be quite dead he loved his son yes but he was beginning to see that he loved him for certain qualities he had read into him and that perhaps after all well perhaps after all the sin for which he was now atoning in loneliness was that of having been too exclusively an artist of having cherished george too egoistically and self-indulgently too much as his own most beautiful creation if he had loved him more humanly more tenderly and recklessly might he have not put into his son the tenderness and recklessness which were beginning to seem to him the qualities most supremely human End of chapter 14 Recording by Chad